Well, we are in Titus chapter 2 this morning, verses 1 through 6. We've taken a break from our normal uh, study through the book of Romans. And uh, this summer, uh, we are in a, a second week in thinking through the topic of discipleship. And so if you can read along with me, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. You want to keep your copy of God's Word open to Titus 2 uh, because we'll refer back to it and uh, we'll, we'll jump around a little bit as well. And so be ready to, to follow along and look at Scripture to see these truths directly from God's Word. We'll read along with me. Titus 2, verse 1. But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in self-steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children." to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And this ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The title of this morning's message is Discipleship is for the Changeable. You know, part of what makes God, God, is that he is unchangeable. Theologians call this his immutability. It means that God cannot improve, he cannot progress, because he is eternally perfect and complete. He, he can't change. He can't get in a sour mood when the weather gets bad, when governments fail, or when less people pray to him. He's eternally and always good, righteous, fair, and holy in all of his attributes. And since God lacks nothing and has no room to grow, he cannot change. We, however, are inherently changeable. Now, at this point, you think of your stagnant husband or your stubborn child, and you just might tell me, well, you don't know my husband and you don't know my child. Perhaps I don't, but you need to remember, we are creatures, born, growing, maturing, learning, and forgetting, getting sick, and eventually dying. God is unchangeable, and by definition, we are changeable. Even your husband or child can change. They can become less holy or more. And even though parenting efforts feel fruitless when you're getting three hours of sleep, your toddler daughter will be potty trained by 16, I can assure you. And unlike God, we realize that we are often heavily influenced by circumstances. Like this last week when we went backpacking and had to hike our final 11 miles, boots full of water, fully soaked to the bone. Now, I don't know about you, if you've ever walked with boots full of water, to say that you're tempted to grumble is a bit of an understatement. I think it's more accurate to say we wanted to write off backpacking, maybe even the outdoors altogether for years to come. But that was in the harder moments. In reality, we learned a lot from some unexpected circumstances. We grew, and we changed, and I trust for the better. Added to our changeable nature, we have a world system that is corrupted by sin that, that pressures us to change or to conform to its mold. 1 Peter 4, verse 4 says, They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. In fact, without Christ, Ephesians 2, 2 tells us, We all follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and we grow ever more hostile to the gospel. We reject truths like humility, like learning to see selfish desires as sin. 
like desperately needing Jesus' sacrifice in order to be right with God. The gospel smells like rotten fruit to a dying world, 2 Corinthians 2.16. But for the Christian, those truths are a sweet fragrance that, that produce change. The fact of the matter is, we're always changing, which is why Paul encourages us in Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in spite of what you might think of that stubborn person in your life or in the mirror, we're all capable of change by design. And that's where discipleship comes in. Remember, a disciple at its simplest is a follower, a learner, one who changes. Now, this can be done from afar. We can be followers, for example, of celebrities, emulating styles and loving their music and knowing everything about their life without ever really knowing them. But following Jesus is much more than trying to act like Jesus from afar. The Bible actually speaks of Christians as those who are united to Christ. Romans 6 tells us that by trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection as a perfect substitute for our sins, we are actually covered by his blood, totally forgiven before God, and here's our phrase, united to Christ. So being a disciple of Christ doesn't begin with something we do, but something that Christ did. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He fully paid the debt that we owe to God. He was crushed for our sins. And as he hung on the cross, the Father poured out the wrath for the sins of humanity on the Son. And then, three days later, Jesus rose from the dead to prove that he had conquered and finished paying the necessary penalty for our sins all so that we could know peace with God. You see, because God is good and just and fair, he must punish every single sin on one of two places, on every individual or on Christ in our place. You see, Christian discipleship begins with understanding God's way of forgiveness. God's free gift that is offered to us in Christ to make us one with him, to open the opportunity for us to change. That's why Jesus, at one point in his ministry, called out to the crowds who were following him and said, if anyone would come after me to become my disciple, he must what? Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So to be a Christian is to turn from living for self and trust that Christ is the only way to be right with God. And when you actually believe who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished, then it will radically change your life. Because by definition, you are united with Christ and you constantly aim to follow him. That is what every Christian constantly aims to do. And so contrary to what some might think, to be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus. There are no Christians who are not faithful disciples of Jesus. And the process of good and godly change in the Christian life of gradual growth over our whole lives happens through discipleship. It happens as we intentionally invest our life into others with the goal of becoming more like Christ. And what's sad is, uh, the constant draw, even for Christians, is to follow the path of least resistance, to slide into autopilot or to shift our car into neutral. But the thing is, our car's on a hill. And if we're neutral, we're going to just roll back down that hill. That's why Peter tells us the world is surprised when we don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. It's the path of least resistance. 
It's why Paul encourages us, don't be conformed to this world. See, being a disciple of sin is easy. You don't do anything. The only resistance we have is, is from our conscience and perhaps other Christians. So staying in neutral really can't be an option for Christians. We must embrace our identity as a disciple of Jesus. And that takes intentional hard work. It takes an investment of ourselves to grow, to change. But the glorious truth is Christians are changeable for the better. We are changeable to become more like Christ. We have the Holy Spirit who helps us grow to help us fight sin and temptations when they come. And when God's, and, and what is God's normal means of change? What is the normal way that God helps us grow? A good church where discipleship is pursued. See, that's what I want First Baptist Church of Farmington to be. A good church where discipleship is pursued. We're now in our second week exploring God's call to discipleship. And if you were here last week, you'll remember discipleship isn't really optional. It isn't just for next level Christians or future leaders. It's really for everyone. We know that from Jesus's great commission. There's only one command in the great commission in Matthew 28. And that command is go make disciples. Make learners and followers of Jesus Christ. And that includes two steps. The initial discipleship-making process is evangelism, becoming a Christian, and then maturing disciples is what we are calling discipleship. And so every church ought to be engaged consistently in both making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. That's what our mission statement is. If you look on the bulletin, if you look on our church website, to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. That's God's will for our life. And yet, how many of you struggle to know where to start? How to be discipled? How to disciple others? I think the starting point must be humility and admit you still need to change. You still need to grow. So discipleship is only for the humble who recognize they are changeable. To help us figure out what discipleship should look like, we began to work through our definition of discipleship that's clearly rooted in scriptures. It's from our Catechism for Christian Growth, number 163, but let's read the question and the answer together. Question, what is discipleship? Answer, intentionally investing your life into others with the goal of growing together in Christian knowledge, affections, and applications so that you can present each other mature in Christ. Well, last week we got to the first two lines of our definition, and we first we focused on intentionality. We talked about how this command to discipleship isn't just your normal relationship that you have with every Christian. These are intentional relationships. Uh, for example, uh, if you look at Christ, he had hundreds of followers who followed him most of his life and ministry, and yet he chose 12 to be apostles or disciples uh, in a more intimate setting, and even a closer group of three to pour his whole self into, Peter, James, and John. You see, even Jesus is limited in his physical incarnation, and so we also have to be selective, putting priority first on our families and then men focusing on men in your church and women on women in your church following the Titus 2 model. You guys should be still open to Titus 2, and so just notice this example. Titus 2, verse 3, right? Older women are to what? The end of verse 3, teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands. And older men, we see a command given to them in verse 2, and then they are to, according to verse 6, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. 
the normal pattern uh, that we see of discipleship is same-gendered discipleship outside of your family. And as much as one person in the discipleship group is likely to be older or more spiritually mature, discipleship should always be a mutual growing experience. It always requires intentionality in meeting with those who are willing to be open with each other and who want to change and who want to grow, including those who might be considered an older Christian, who are teachable, as Psalm 25, 9 says, God leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. You see, these types of intentional one another relationships are actually God's means to help us grow. So first, we are intentional. And further, we are to invest ourselves into other people's lives. Turn to Philippians 2. I want you to see something real quick. Philippians chapter 2. If you've never seen pigs come to a trough for mealtime, you probably can imagine what it would look like. Pushing, shoving, snorting, swallowing as much as they can without a thought for others. Sounds like a few teen boys I've seen come to the dinner table. And as much as we say we want to give up living for self and follow Christ, we can struggle in a major way with still being extremely self-focused and self-centered, even in how we approach church. Think about the last couple of weeks you came to church. Where did you park? The furthest spot away so that the people who come later could have a closer spot? Who did you talk to after the service, and why did you talk to them? What was going on in your head during the sermon, during the singing? Was it for others, or was it simply on your own trials? You're in Philippians 2. Read verse 3 with me. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There it is again. Christ-likeness should mark every Christian. Humility, self-sacrifice, personal investments are all part of what it means to imitate Christ. And they're vital parts of discipleship. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter 20 and Paul's final visit with the Ephesian elders as a model for our discipleship. And listen to how he ends his time with the Ephesian elders, detailing the intensity of his investment into their lives. Just listen as I read Acts 20, verse 35. Paul said, And in all these things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him. See, our investment into the lives of others may not pay immediate dividends, but it is motivated by a Christ-like willingness to give of ourselves for another's good. It's an investment that reflects selfless love. And do you think those Ephesian elders, as they cried with Paul at the end, understood what Paul had given up for them? Absolutely. And isn't that what should mark all Christians? 1 John 4, verse 19 says it very clearly, doesn't it? We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Listen, it is always easier to stay active and even serve in church without having to get into another person's business. I mean, our business, if we're honest, is often messy, and it takes love to disciple one another and put up 
with each other's business. It takes selfless love to, to know our brothers and sisters' flaws and still love them just the same. And when you're doubting whether or not you should invest your life into others, especially when that brother or that sister is quite difficult, just remember, sometimes you're just as difficult. So show grace as you show love one to another. And see, we need to be intentional about pursuing a discipleship relationship and commit to investing in another's life, regardless of the cost. But now, what does the Bible tell us we need to focus on in these times together? What is the goal of discipleship? Point number three here. It's that the goal of growing together. We are to be intentional. We're to invest our life into others with a goal of growing together. Now, the day after Palm Sunday, just a few days before his crucifixion, Jesus and the disciples see a fig tree in the distance with quite a few leaves. Hoping to find figs, they, they go up to it and, and, and expect to find some sort of fruit. But there was none. So Jesus cursed the tree and said, May no one eat fruit from you again. Now you hear that story, you might read that story and think, how odd. Did Jesus just lose his temper and take it out on a fig tree? I think that can't be the case because he's Jesus after all. And see, Jesus wanted to teach the disciples a lesson. That if a tree was expected to produce fruit and didn't, it is rightly cursed and even cut down. Luke 13, he tells a parable to that effect. And then a few hours later, after he sees and curses that fig tree, Jesus taught them the same lesson with the money changers in the temple. In spite of the beauty of the temple, the supposed show of right worship that was going on, it had become a den for cheats. And so he flips over the table and drives them out with a whip. Later, he would go out from Jerusalem and weep for the city, for all those who have rejected him. See, all of these stories have the same point. Genuine followers of the one true God must grow and produce fruit. They will always embrace Jesus as their Messiah and become more like him. A beautiful facade isn't enough. All Christians must grow. Discipleship has, as its goal, Christian growth. But we're not just talking about private growth when you read the Bible on your own or listen to a sermon or a podcast on your own. Discipleship is inherently relational. It's about living life with another Christian to help them grow. So discipleship is always, what does it say? With the goal of growing together. Now, as we look at Titus 2, we're going to notice our growth regimen. Go ahead and turn back to Titus 2 if you're not there already. And we're going to see the areas of focus for our discipleship. We're to grow together in Christian knowledge. First, it's in Christian knowledge. Now, the book of Titus, Paul is writing to one of his good friends and one of his disciples by the name of Titus. And this young pastor was left in Crete to help establish and strengthen churches on that particular island. Now, chapter 1 deals with setting up a plurality of elders in each church, a group of faithful pastors and faithful men who could defend the faith and shepherd the flock. And, and now in chapter 2, we get his directive for, for what should happen in these churches. And we see right at the top of verse uh, chapter 2 and verse 1, these words. But as for you, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And that really is a starting point for all growth in the Christian life. We have to be taught sound doctrine. 
Doctrine is simply truths about God from God's word. And to say that those are sound means that they are healthy, free from error, good for our growth. Also look what Paul writes to Titus at the end of chapter 2, verse 15. Read that verse with me. He says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. See, Paul ends this entire chapter on discipleship again with the same basic command. Teach, exhort, encourage people to understand truth about God and how it should apply to their life. So Titus is to equip the church to teach sound doctrine and to engage as a whole body in discipleship. And clearly the first step of discipleship is to know sound doctrine. That's why we regularly use a catechism in our home and in our church. That's why we systematically, verse by verse, work our way through books of the Bible from the pulpit. And that's why in discipleship, you should do things like read your Bible together. Like look, a, read a good Christian book together. It's all so that we can learn truths about God that are healthy for our souls. And to clarify, this isn't just a pastoral responsibility. Look at what Titus is to encourage everyone in the church. Verse 2, he has a word of encouragement for older men to be what? Sound in faith. And then he says in the very next verse, older women then are to, at the end of verse 3, teach what is good. These are just normal people in the congregation. They are to know and to teach sound doctrine. So the command for every Christian to know sound doctrine is really all throughout scriptures. And so I want to show you one other place. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Now what I love about the book of Colossians is that what we have here in this book is Paul's letter to a church that he had never visited. And so when I read Colossians, I like to think of this as a letter really to most of us whom Paul has never visited. Re really, uh, a group of people that Paul never interacted with, this is the type of things that he would say to people like us. And in Colossians 1, we see Paul's prayer for people that he had never met. And so look then at verse 9. And as we read, ask yourself, how important is it to Paul that every Christian grow in knowledge? Chapter 1, verse 9. And Paul is essentially recording this prayer. And so from the day we heard, we have not heard of you and your faith. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Three different ways Paul says, Paul says, I want them to grow in knowledge, in spiritual wisdom, and in understanding. He, he, he recycles the same basic idea three times to drive his point home. The beginning of our growth, the beginning of the prayer request that he has for every Christian is that we would know God better. A.W. Tozer famously opened his book, Knowing God, with these words. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. You see, discipleship always has the goal of knowing more of God from God's word. But Christian knowledge is never an end in itself. Christianity isn't just some giant college course where we cram a bunch of information in as best we can. It isn't all about memorizing piles of biblical facts so you could somehow win Bible trivia. Christian knowledge is only the first of our discipleship goals. So we're also to have the goal of growing together in Christian knowledge and Christian affections. Second goal Christian knowledge, and Christian affections. Now, you should still be in Colossians 1, 
where Paul prays for increased, increased Christian knowledge for this church he's never met. And why does he do that? So that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, may you then be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. See, what does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? It is to walk with joy, giving thanks to the Father in every situation. It is to adopt, then, Christian affections or emotions or passions. What we know to be true very often influences our affections or our desires. So go back to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. In 2015, a man secretly filmed a Planned Parenthood executive asking to secure uh, fetal tissue and body parts for his research firm. Supposedly, Planned Parenthood isn't supposed to profit from aborted babies, but that's precisely part of the business model that apparently he uncovered. And the man wanted to reveal that Planned Parenthood has a financial incentive to abort more babies and to keep certain portions of those aborted babies intact so they could sell body parts. Now, the videos that were released weren't just informative. They weren't a cold set of facts. The videos were released to stir up affections, to motivate those who are at least uneasy with abortion to face the gruesome reality of what's actually going on with abortion and to have our emotions stirred then into action. You see, the most important facts in life stir up our emotions, our affections. Certainly that is the case with Christian knowledge. And knowing more about God is not some sterile, calculated pursuit as if we're learning math. I mean, who really likes learning math? Okay, some of you do, but not many. Christian knowledge should affect Christian affections. Look at Titus 2, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. See, so many of those descriptions have to do with Christian affections, connecting what you think to how you feel. For example, sober-minded and self-controlled are very much related. It means that you're serious when you need to be, and you don't give in to sinful passions, giving in to doing whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. It also says that older men are to be dignified. Literally, that word means your passions are above reproach. They are honorable, in control, and appropriate. Further, it says that older men are, what does it say at the end of the verse there? Sound in love. It means you have healthy, selfless affection for others and sound in steadfastness. It means you have an inward resolve to persevere no matter the trial or difficulty. And so older men, yes, are to teach what is right, but also they are to model sound Christian affections, sound Christian passions and emotions. And look at how he similarly instructs women in verse 4. The older women are to train the young women to love their husbands and children. And the love here is an affectionate love for family, and not just a selfless love, but a caring, familial love. The, the idea is that women are to have a deep, heartfelt affinity for their families. And so notice the movement. It starts with older women teaching what is good at the end of verse 3, discipling in Christian knowledge, and then addresses Christians' affections or the desires of the heart in verse 4, training young women to love their husbands and children, which then translates into actions, verse 5, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, 
and the word of God, that the word of God may not be reviled. But this progression from knowledge to affections to actions, that's not just found in Titus 2. Uh, Turn to Philippians 1. Philippians 1. In Philippians 1, we find another one of Paul's prayers, and this time it is for the church in Philippi. And as Paul remembers how Christ worked in Philippi when he had visited them and helped establish that church, we see that his heart is burning with Christian affections or emotions. Look at Philippians 1, verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And so he prays that their affections would be stirred up as well, but not just sentimentality, but affections that are based on knowing Christ. Verse 9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that they might then live a righteous life. Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so we see the sequential goals of discipleship. Again, in this passage, know God, grow in godly affections, live a godly life. And so our third goal, you could say, is to grow in Christian applications. So we grow together in Christian knowledge, affections, and applications. Go back to Titus 2 again with me. And verse 3. Paul instructs the older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Here we see a crucial component of discipleship. The more mature Christian must be known for her godly life. And so look at the progression again of Titus 2. Older men and older women are to know the truth in verse 1. As Titus teaches what accords with sound doctrine. Then they are to grow in Christian affections as he commends to older men in verse 2. And then they are to grow in Christian applications, which he encourages the older women in verse 3. And then they are to teach the younger generation, the end of verse 3, what is good. And then they are to encourage Christian affections, verse 4, to love their families, and then they are to grow in Christian applications in verse 5. See, the purpose of this sermon isn't to detail the specifics of the gender roles here. I'm going to simply note one thing. There are differences. At the very least, godly wives and mothers are to be able to have a heart and to encourage to have a heart for the home by God's design. But what is very important for you to remember is the blueprint for discipleship relationships that's found in these verses. Know, feel, do. Truth, passions, actions. See, a good discipleship relationship focuses on all three, on Christian knowledge, on Christian affections, and on Christian applications. So what then is the end result of our discipleship. Our last part of the definition, verse, uh, point four here, so that you can present each other mature in Christ. So that you can present each other mature in Christ. Go back to Colossians 1. Occasionally, I'll come out of my bathroom and find that both my wife and I picked out the same T-shirt or are wearing similar color schemes. And I don't think it's we're quite old enough or young enough to think that's cute anymore. So one of us ends up changing. But the fact that we've been married for 17 years makes us prone to think, act, and even sometimes look similarly. So if you are a Christian, and you belong to Christ and are a member of his body and are united to him, then wouldn't you expect to start looking like Jesus? To start acting like Jesus? 
Romans 8.29 promises, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And Colossians 3, 9 and 10 adds, You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. See, all our days, if we belong to Christ, we are gradually changing, changing to become like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It is a wonderful blessing. God has seen fit to include us in this process. I mean, God certainly could have said, I gave you the Holy Spirit. That's how you change. That's all you need. You're good to go. But no, God says, I want you to be involved in the process of sanctification and gradual growing in righteousness and becoming more like Christ. And that process that we're involved in is called discipleship. So we should intentionally invest our lives into others with the goal of growing together in Christian knowledge, affections, and applications so that you can present each other mature in Christ. And now we get to Colossians 1.28 and we see Paul's mission statement for discipleship. Verse 28, 1.28, he says, Him we proclaim. Christ we proclaim. So first and foremost, discipleship is all about becoming a follower of Christ, of his life, of his message, and cherishing his salvation that comes through him alone. He says, him, Christ, we proclaim. Then he gets into the content of discipleship. He gets into Christian knowledge. So we proclaim Christ warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And finally, the end result of that discipleship, the end of verse 28, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Notice that this isn't Paul's goal for some or for leaders, what does he say at the end of the verse? To present everyone mature in Christ. We should be discipled to depend more on Christ, to be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity. We should be discipled to daily put off the old and put on the new self, ever growing into the image of Christ. We should be discipled to give a defense for the gospel hope within. We should be discipled to discern truth from error and lead our families on the straight and narrow. We should be discipled to Christian maturity to, be, to grow more and more into the image of Christ. Oh, beloved, this is a tall order, but it should be the aim of our lives and thus the aim of our discipleship. As we close, let's consider a few points of application. We're going to focus on how to start discipling. First point of application here, start with one. Now, I hope after last week, you've already reached out to someone. Maybe you've had a conversation. Maybe you've had a phone call. And, and if not, today is a great day to start that process of reaching out. And if you don't know anyone well enough, start talking to people around you in your church family. Now, here's what some of you will do. You'll look around, and you'll see that no one is reaching out to you and saying, hey, can you be my discipleship buddy? And you'll think, man, I guess no one really wants to disciple me. I guess I'm just all alone. And you'll refuse to take the first step. So, beloved, it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for weeks or a Christian for years. It doesn't matter if you're the most introvert person or the most extrovert person. Take initiative and start having intentional discipleship relationships with at least one person. Remember, you can disciple a peer. So repurpose a, a close friendship. Have it be more discipleship-oriented. You don't have to have 10 to 15 discipleship relationships going on but you could make yourself available for one. Second, commit to regular meetings. Commit to regular meetings and be flexible with those meetings. 
These types of relationships take time to forge. So try to be consistent. Perhaps discipleship for you at this time is simply being committed to your care group. Great. Then carve that time on your calendar and don't let other things get in the way. If it's another time with one-on-one meeting with another individual or another small group of, of three moms getting together, that'll work too. Just be consistent. And after you've made contact and attempted to start meeting, you need to start talking about what you're going to do at these meetings. And if you're going to grow in Christian knowledge, point number three, bring a Bible. Read a paragraph every meeting and talk about it. Choose a book to read through or read a Christian book together or review our catechism together. Whatever you decide to do, keep God's word at the center of it. Some of my richest times of discipleship were, were when I would get together and just ask questions of wiser, older men. Point number four, be open, be vulnerable. James 5.16 tells us, confess your sins to one another. And part of discipleship includes being willing to share your current struggles. And unless you are dead, you have current struggles. Talk about how God's word applies to your situation. Discipleship is a two-way street where two sinners struggle together through the life that God has put before us. So be open, be vulnerable. Which also means you both need to get good at asking questions. Next point, ask questions. Don't settle for vague descriptions of struggles. Try to help each other explore your motivations that led you up to sin. Try to discern why you don't desire to read God's word. Help each other figure out why you don't really care about going to care group or can't seem to ever pray with your spouse. Ask lots of questions that get to heart motivations. And number six, pray. James 5.16 again, confess your sins to one another, one another and pray for one another. So jot down some prayer requests. Follow up on those prayer requests. Pray for each other every day. Text each other when you pray for one another. Effective prayers can continue long after the meeting's done. Something else to keep in mind with discipleship, be patient. Be patient. This week I heard a story of a young Muslim woman who heard the gospel from missionaries years before she became a Christian. In fact, it was her third set of contacts with Christians when she finally understood and believed the gospel. God, the Holy Spirit, decides when to reveal his truth in her heart. Sometimes fruit from our labors happens years later. I mean, there was a case when a young man I discipled who didn't seem to get it too well, who often struggled in his faith, and yet years later I got a message thanking me for my impact. Simply be patient. Be regular to meet with other Christians. And last, Live life together. Live life together. As much as discipleship takes intentionality, my discipleship relationships often vary. They can be somewhat of a more formal Bible study. They can also sometimes be less formal and less regular discussions while our kids might play together. Sometimes it's at a coffee shop and others it's based out of our home. Be willing to do a variety of activities with your Christian brothers and sisters. So much can be learned simply by watching God, a godly man or a godly woman respond to a rather harrowing situation when you're standing right there. For that, you've got to live life together. Listen to how Paul describes his time in Thessalonica as we close. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are my witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you 
believers. Well, there's a lot of talk about influencers, people who have massive social media followings. But the fact of the matter is, every Christian is an influencer, and every Christian is influenced. If we stay in neutral, never pursuing discipleship, we'll roll back down toward the world. God's call for your life is to be a disciple, to be influenced by other Christians, to become more like Christ. And so my prayer for us as a church is that we would develop that type of culture of discipleship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've got a chance to study what your word says about developing a culture of discipleship in our church. And Lord, part of that culture of discipleship is to constantly point each other towards Christ. And one of the most glorious ways that we get to do that on a monthly basis is by taking the Lord's Supper together. For it's in this supper that we look back and we remember the glorious work that you accomplished while you hung on the tree. We look back at your resurrection and we have great hope that we have a glorious future for us. And so we can look forward with great anticipation of a sure and certain final salvation that is ours because we belong to you. And we also think of you and look up remembering that you are sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. We have direct access to God because we belong to you, Christ. We thank you for that. We also know that this time is a time for us to look within and to consider our own ways that we might need to grow and sin that needs to be confessed and turned from. But also in this period of the Lord's Supper, this is a chance for us to look around and to recognize the glorious reality that here we have gathered a body of Christ, a church family, a flock where discipleship can happen, where we can encourage each other when we are weak and when we are heavy laden, and we can encourage each other to persevere and to push on and to be those who turn our eyes regularly to Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the supper and the richness with which it provides us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.